youth pastor at First Baptist for about 11 and a half years. And since that time, over the last four or five years, I've been in charge of our sports ministry. And so I see some kiddos, I see some families. As a matter of fact, uh, I have one of my players here. She happens to be my daughter, uh, Mackenzie. This is my smallest daughter. Uh, I have another one at ETBU, and I have a son at the Air Force Academy. Uh, so uh, my wife couldn't be here. Uh, she is out of town this week. But nonetheless, we are delighted to be here. I appreciate you so much. Uh, we are good friends of this church and the folks of this church. This church has been a wonderful partner uh, in ministry, not just in Upward, but in other areas as well. So thank you so much. We are going to continue today that series that you have been covering, the stories we tell. And I want to share with you an unfamiliar story about a familiar character that you know a lot about. We're going to be talking about David today. Now, we could go around the room, quite honestly, and you, there's several of you that could tell me many different stories about David. You could maybe talk about Goliath. You could maybe talk about the story of Bathsheba. You could talk about his kingship. You could talk about a lot of different things, the friend of God. I want to talk to you, though, about a story that many of us have never heard, and it has some players in it that you may have never heard of. I want to introduce to you some folks in a particular story where David is in a pickle. I don't know if you've ever been in a pickle before. I was actually on a roller coaster one time with my son Gabriel. It was SWAT. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. SWAT at the old Astroworld. And it's a giant fly swatter that rotates up and down, round and round. And it was brand new. Gabriel and I got on that ride. And it should, uh, it should happen on the day that we're there, the thing breaks down. And it breaks down while we are upside down. And uh, we are literally suspended with our heads hanging down, we're looking at everybody down on the ground. Blood is rushing to our head. And Gabriel looks at me and says, Cool! <laughs> is this supposed to do this? And, uh, of course, it wasn't. Uh, Gabe had a great time. I had a horrible time. What seemed like an eternity uh, was really only about 10 or 15 minutes. But try it sometime. Try to hang upside down for 10 or 15 minutes. It is a pickle. David was in a pickle. I want to tell you a story, and we're going to eventually get to the verse of Scripture, but I'm going to, it's a very, very long story. You can hang out for a while if you want to go later and hang out in 2 Samuel, say, 12 and 13 and all of 14. You can read all of this story. But David has two sons uh, that, that we're referring to this, this morning, Absalom and Abnon. Now, Due to an R-rated scandal that we do not have time to cover today, maybe another day, but these two have been very angry with each other, and Absalom eventually kills Amnon, and he flees the country. He runs, he escapes, and David is still flinching from his own horrible sins of his past, and he becomes quite honestly, he becomes hardened and angry and he becomes callous toward Absalom. And deep down inside though, David longs to bring his son, his estranged son back. He misses him. And he wants resolution. He wants redemption. But he can't find a way back to do so. But leave it up to another character maybe you are familiar with by the name of Joab. He's actually a relative of David's, but he's also the commander of his army. 
And he sees the despair. He sees the quandary. He sees the pickle. And on behalf of David, he intervenes, but he does so quietly. And he, he basically composes a trick. And what he does, he goes out and he finds a so-called wise woman. Now, she is really, in my opinion, the focus of the story here. We all know David, but this woman from Tekoa, the Bible says, does an incredible job. Joab arranges this little trickeration and brings her as if she is calling upon the king himself, David, and says, hey, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go to King David and, and propose that you have this serious issue yourself. And it needs to correlate to his own so that when he hears your story, he can maybe be brought about by realizing that your story is like his. And that's exactly what happens. The woman from Tekoa comes and begs of King David and says, in my family, my two sons, after my, my husband has died, they are very angry with one another. And they're angry and, and one is offended the other and, and the rest of the family is angry and will not have anything to do with him. So they're, they're afraid, uh, he is afraid of the rest of the family. He is estranged. He is gone. What should I do? She pleads and she pleads. And of course, David in his infinite wisdom says, well, of course, you need to go after him. You and your family, in the name of redemption, in the name of hope, in the name of healing, you need to bring that son back. Well, it's at that point that the woman, Tekoa, says, um, and this is, this is in the Hebrew, gotcha. In her own words, basically, she looks at him and says, Oh, King David, allow me to speak. If you want me to bring my child back, why don't you bring yours back? And Joab, of course, later reveals that he is the mastermind behind this. But listen to the words in 2 Samuel 14, 14. Now, before we read this, I have to admit, we all have those favorite verses. Jeremiah 29, 11, many of you could quote today. John 3, 16, Romans 5, 8, Romans 10, 9, uh, many of the Psalms. This is in the category... Of a verse, of verses of scripture in my life that is one of the golden nuggets. That if it were quoted enough, it would become so powerful and meaningful, and people would commit it to memory. This is the word. These are the words of the woman of Decoa, the one who is involved in tricking David. Listen to what she says. Like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. Now, like so many verses of Scripture that we read, at that point, at that period, it seems very, very disheartening. If that was the end of the Scripture, there would be no hope. It's very discouraging. But it goes on. Like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God, but God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. You see, we learn today, folks, from the lady from Decoa that God is active in all situations. And I mean all. He strategizes. 
He devises, he coaches, he explains, he plans his moves. Much like a a coach prepares the X's and the O's. You've seen them on the big chalkboard. The Super Bowl is next week. And you better believe that Bill Belichick is still using the age-old strategy of writing the X's and the O's up on the the, the board and trying to handle this situation. How we're going to handle this defense. How we're going to attack on offense. And he devises plans. He tries to come up with ways to find success. That's the picture here, church. That's exactly what's going on. Scripture is telling us that God is active so much so that he is constantly devising. He's constantly strategizing on your behalf. He's doing the X's and O's. His game plan, he's working it out. And it is all intended to draw you close into himself. I want to talk to you today just briefly about God's activity. His non-stop, unyielding activity in your life. Scripture will reveal his relentless, I'm going to say that again, his relentless pursuit of mankind. Each and every one of us. So tell me, when was, when in the last, uh, just think back in your own life. When was it that God became active in your life? Think about that for a second. Harken back to that time. When did it all start? Has his activity or his interest in your life ever stopped since then? Has it ever been postponed? Has he ever taken a break from being active in your life? Has he ever taken a leave without letting you know what's going on? Well, today we want to look at what Scripture has to say about God's unique interaction within your own life. Number one, God was active in your beginnings. That's right. Even before you were a twinkle in anybody's eye, God was already active. He was already planning. He was already strategizing what he was going to do with and through you. Many of you know Jeremiah 1.5. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It's ironic that just this past week or so, that there have been two different marches in Washington, D.C., taking different sides of this. But I'm here to tell you, God has given us the answer about life. He knew you and me before we were ever born and he was strategizing and carrying out his will through you even before you showed your face on this planet. That ought to be encouraging to you. God was working in you in your pre-existence on planet earth. Take a look back if you happen to have turned there, Jeremiah 1.5. Look at the verbs or listen to the verbs describing one man's beginning. One man. Think about this. Words like formed you. I knew you. I set you apart. I appointed you. Those are aggressive words. Those are intentional, proactive words. And if you begin For just a moment to allow Satan to get into your mind and say, I am not worthy, I have no worth, 
I doubt myself. I doubt my existence. I don't know why I'm here, and I am unsure of my existence. Let me tell you something. God was never in doubt. God has had a plan for you, a magnificent plan, even before you took your first breath on planet Earth. Number two, God was active in your lostness. This beautiful verse from Romans 5, verse 6, says, you see, this is, you know, you know how when a preacher tells you to underline a verse? This is one of those, if you had a, a marker, you know, a highlighter, you had a red pen with you, you had a sticky note, you had one of those little funny things that has an arrow that points, you know, you, you, know, you stick to your page, all those kind of things. This is the one you want to like circle, put stars, explosions coming around. This is an incredible phrase what I'm about to read you. It's just a little phrase. You see, at just the right time. <laughs> That's God's economy. Not on our time, not your time, not my time, not anybody else's, but at his time, just the right time, when we were powerless. Because you know what? If we did it on our time, it would be when we were powerful, yes? It would, when we have, it would be when we have everything together, when we've got it manhandled, when we've got control. But God's right timing, it says, even when you were powerless, because when it comes to sin, we are powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Somebody say amen. That's good timing. You see, he was active even when you were rebellious. Even after your existence began, you wanted to choose a different destination. You wanted to choose a different savior, a different answer, a different hope. God was active all throughout that. I want to tell you a story about a man I know very well. I've gone door to door knocking with this guy sharing the gospel for years and gone to church with him for years. His name is Delmar. Delmar tells a story of how, as a young man, he was completely, when I say completely strung out, I mean, just let your mind go there. Strung out on drugs. This guy was so strung out, he was selling and dealing both drugs and guns in order to pay for his, his addiction. But he lost everything, as we see in a situation like that, to the point that he didn't have enough money to buy his drugs. He was so strung out. Get this, when he told me the story, I said, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. What did you just say? Just like you're fixing to do. Because you're going to think I made a mistake. He told me he was so strung out on drugs. And he was so broke because of his wild living that he would shoot up with Sprite. Don't you think about that? Sprite? Yeah, 7-Up? Yeah. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, we're talking about two. He said, no, Brad. He said, when you're a junkie like that, when you're so strung out, you just got to have something in your veins. That's how bad off this guy was. One day, he ran into one of his old buddies. Delmar had just bought himself a brand new pair of boots that he really couldn't afford just only because he had just made a drug deal. And he owed many others, but he went out instead and bought him a pair of boots. He ran into a buddy 
in a parking lot of a local dealership, I mean, like a Walmart or whatever. I don't know if it was a Walmart or not, but it was in town. They ran across each other and he pulled up and saw his other buddy and he had his wife in the car. The buddy did. And Delmar looked at his buddy and said, hey man, look at my new boots. And he held up his boots. What do you think about these, these boots? And his buddy said, hey, nice boots, bud. He said, but I got something else I want to ask you. Delmar, sure, sure, what is it? He said, hey, my wife and I, we're going down to, to the revival downtown, the local church. <clears throat> Would you be willing to go with us? <laughs> oh, no, man, no way, not interested. As a matter of fact, I was about to ask you if you could give me a lift down to the local, uh, to the local bar. He named the bar. And he said, by the way, I would love five bucks, if you don't mind. Now, get this. The friend said, okay, hop in. We'll take you down there. <laughs> Some of you are thinking this is going to really end super cool by them taking Delmar to church. No, they took him to the bar. Let him off the bar, handed him five bucks, said, we'll see you later. The friend, though, and his wife go down to the, the revival they storm into the revival and say, hey, we've we got to stop what we're doing. I've got to tell you this. Delmar is down at the bar. He's drinking his life away. And I want you to know, we need to stop what we're doing. We just need to pray for Delmar right now. And the whole church stopped what they were doing and began to pray, fall on their faces for Delmar. And at that very instance, let me tell you something. You just want to have tears in your eyes. Two men sitting in a restaurant. I'm, I'm a bubbling idiot. He's telling me the story. He said, Brad, I don't know how to explain it. He said, I found out later what the timing was. But he said, I was sitting at this bar. I was drinking, had a beer in my hand. He said, at one moment, several minutes, about 30 minutes after they dropped me off, I put the beer down. He said, I had no more desire whatsoever in my life. I had no addiction whatsoever to touch any drug, anything like it. And he said, from that day... Jesus cured me of my addiction on that spot. I walked away and I never touched it again. He found out later what happened and rejoiced even more. And it was because of those prayers at that very precise moment, reflecting Romans 5, that just at the right time when Delmar was still powerless, he was at his weakest, Christ died for him. And he redeemed him and he brought him back. My fellow believer, the very fact that you are a child of God today is because he sought you out, not the other way around. You did not find him, he found you. That's scriptural, by the way, that's biblical. The God of creation used the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, and he hunted you down in love. Francis Thompson wrote a famous poem acknowledging God as the hound of heaven. The poem is a beautiful picture of God's relentless pursuit of the human soul you see in that poem about the hound of heaven it points to the fact that he found you and all the while he was active in your lostness all along the way I encourage you if you don't believe me then sit down with the Delmars in your life I know for a fact that there are people in this building right here right now within the sound of my voice that can tell stories of how God did amazing things just at the right time. And I encourage you to listen to their testimonies. Visit with your church family and listen to their story of, stories of God's deliverance at precisely the right time. God is also active now in your struggles. You see, we know from Scripture 
that he watches the grass and the lilies and the sparrows, and he definitely is watching you. We find in Luke 12, 24, it says, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. Who are you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. Do they not labor or spin? Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God's clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? You see, when he's saying, O ye of little faith, you know he's talking to? He's talking about those who do not trust or cannot see or hear his orchestration. Let me ask you something. How many, by the way, y'all are blessed with a terrific worship band. Amen? Amen. Wow. What do the kids do? Wow. <laughs> that was awesome. Now, I know we have other... How many, how many of you in here would say, I'm, I'm musically inclined? I sing, I play something. Raise your hand. Let me see. Yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of you, okay? You're, you love music. Well, I've done a little singing, and I've got a very talented group of... Uh, kiddos in my house that, that are very talented in music and I've learned a little bit about and, and about orchestra direction now, I don't do it I watch other people do it very well but if you watch a maestro you know what that maestro is doing he is assembling and interpreting the various instruments in order to achieve a desired result now I was part at one time, several years ago, uh, there were several guys on staff, four of us, uh, on a, in a quartet. You see, that's how that works. A quartet is four. And uh, <laughs> uh, I'm smart. Uh, I was part of a quartet, and we were called the Staff Quartet. And we traveled all over the place singing, and we did it at the hospitals for folks that were, that were sick. And we even traveled to Bulgaria and England and did a little short tour not quite like the Beatles, but, you know, we, we had fun nonetheless. But, you know, uh, the four guys, uh, the, the four of us that were on staff, we would practice a lot because we had varying degrees and skills in music. And we had one guy on, on, in the staff quartet. His name was Chuck Pace. He has now moved away and is out of state. Love Chuck Pace. Still a very good friend of mine, but he would sing the baritone note. And Chuck couldn't read a stitch of music. He didn't know a C from a H, okay? He didn't know anything about music. But he had an incredible ear. And so when he would listen to the music, all he had to do is by rote, listen to it, listen to it, listen to it, listen to it. And he would listen to those notes and learn it that way. But let me tell you, when he would come in and practice and uh, our music guy would go, okay, everybody's singing their part. When he would sing that baritone note, I'm telling you, it was awful. It was terrible. And you're like, well, what do you mean? I thought y'all said well, you were a pretty good quartet. We were. It was just that when you sing the baritone note by itself, it sounds awful. It's not the melody note, right? Just like these guys, there's some notes that some of these guys are playing. When these ladies are playing or singing that sung by itself or played by itself maybe sound a little odd. But when it's part of a grand orchestration, it is simply beautiful. And some of us need to realize 
that where we are in our life right now, the struggles and the valley that we may be in is simply a baritone note. It is a note that we can't hear or it doesn't sound, look, or feel right right now. But in God's economy, in God's orchestration, the grand maestro, he gets it. He hears it. He knows what it sounds like all put together. And we should have no doubt. Matter of fact, with an organ, you know one of those big organs? My son goes to the Air Force Academy. You want to go see an organ, go to the Air Force Academy chapel and see that, that humongous pipe organ that fills up the entire back of the Air Force Academy. An organ, by the way, the, the dissonance of a simple C note, when you play that C, by itself, if you were to play it, it sounds awful. Matter of fact, it even sounds weird. One note, one note. And that is because the, the, the dissonance of a simple C note by itself, it, it, it accentuates the overtones. In other words, some things that may not be clearly heard by us, it has some notes a little higher or, or a, maybe not a note, but a tone different, higher and lower, and it fills it. And in every note, there is an overtone that the human ear basically cannot hear, making the sound even richer. Now, I want to let you let that sink in. Draw a parallel here, folks. When we listen to the note of life and we examine our own lives, we are looking at it or listening to life or examining it in such a way where we cannot hear or even understand the overtones. And all the while, God is allowing that note in our life with the realization and knowledge in his own grand will that he is doing something with the purpose of making extremely rich. He is wanting to play the baritone of your life and make it sound so much richer when it's all orchestrated together. God is even working when we cannot sense it. God is active when we and others have convinced us that he is no longer around. Our resolve, get this, this is for somebody here today. Our resolve and our insistence that God is not around has nothing to do whether or not he is or not. My atheist friend, your belief that God doesn't exist doesn't change anything. That doesn't make God non-existent. God is. Take comfort today of the immutable fact that God is active today in your struggles. It is an absolute. Take a look again at 2 Samuel 14, 14 and note the word devises. The word devises in 2 Samuel 14, 14 literally comes from the word quashab. A word study reveals the potential for all of the following synonyms to this actual word. Listen to this. To weave, to fabricate, to plot, to think, to regard, to value, to compute, to account for, to forecast, to invent, to reckon. In other words, when you're becoming unraveled, he is a tailor weaving the fabric of your tattered heart. When you're broken down, he is the machinist fabricating and milling the rough edges of your emotions. When your life is ramshackled, he's the architect plotting a grand renovation. When life is confusing, he's a professor imparting wisdom to his pupil. When things just don't add up, he's the accountant balancing the shortfalls and debts of your life. When you are bankrupt, he is the banker, owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. 
reminding you of both his promises and your personal value in Christ. When life just doesn't compute, he's programming the course correction. When the storms come, he is forecasting and plotting a way through the winds. When there seems to be no way, he's the inventor making a new way. And against all odds, when it just doesn't seem fair, he's the judge, the great defender, reckoning with the enemy. God is in control. And finally, God is active in your rebellion and in your wanderings. We learn from Hebrews 12, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen to what Matthew 18 says. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will, not, will, he, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go back for the one that's wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the other 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. God will do whatever it takes. Now, I want to go slow right here. I want to, I want to finish and make sure you understand what I'm about to say. You remember that poem earlier, The Hound of Heaven? I don't know about you, but I'm that guy that I never put God in a box. I don't like to limit God. And we have folks in this room, or maybe you know some family members or some friends who are wandering. And they're experimenting. Maybe they're a believer. Maybe they're not. But they're running after their own selfish desires. They have no want of a Savior. Having a standard or a rule or a way of life, of holiness, is, they're just not interested in that. <clears throat> Some of you know people that have been running for a long time. And you're weary because they're weary. You're weary of praying. And you're weary of your family having to go through whatever that is your family has to go through. We all have that in our life. As a youth pastor, I had to look at so many young people in the face. And I had to tell them this biblical principle that I'm about to share. And I do want to remind you that everything is steeped in love, especially from God the Father. If our Heavenly Father does not show discipline, Hebrews 12 just said it. It's proof that we're His children is when He disciplines. God, listen to this, will cause earthquakes, tornadoes, death, Plague, famine, financial ruin, loss of your reputation, disasters. He'll do whatever it takes to bring just one 
of his children back to him. I want to let you, I'm going to let that sink into you. He'll do anything. And I have looked in the eyes of many students throughout 20 years of youth ministry, and I've, I've, with tears in my eyes, I've sat across from them, and I've said, God will rattle your cage. And I don't want to watch that. I don't want to have to see that. Because God will take you to the depths in order to get your attention. He will take you to the bottom in order to bring you up. But don't doubt for a second that God will not utterly and completely rattle your cage. Let's make one thing clear here though. I am not saying not all sickness or hurt is God getting you for a sin. Okay, let's, let's get that out. Not everything that you see, not every time there's a tornado or earthquake, does that mean God's wrath is coming down? Sometimes we just live in a broken world. But don't you dare think for a second. Don't dare put God in a box and say he won't let something happen in order to draw his children back to him. We have way too many examples right here to see that and to think differently. As we close this time of the service today, Scripture is clear that he is a father. A father. A loving father. Who must must sometimes use tough, heavenly love to get our attention. And listen, maybe this is for somebody here. I don't know. That discipline is screaming the proof that he loves you. That hound dog coming after you. You've heard it in the movies. That hound dog coming after you, pursuing you over and over, hearing it in the distance. That's God coming after you with love because he cares. And as we close today, I want you to know that Scripture is clear. God is not silent. He's not missing in action. He's not sleeping. And he's not disinterested. I do realize that some of you are in a very deep, dark chasm potentially today. Some would admit today that you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been running. Maybe you're just, you've been hiding and you've been pretending and you've been making excuses. Please know that God will never, 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 never stop pursuing you. He is relentless. He wants to point you to Jesus Christ, his son, In your darkness, don't run from him. Run to him. God accepts you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. Are you willing to trust him today in that? Now, let me speak just a second to the believer. You have a relationship, an unquestioned relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. Will you joyfully submit to the conducting and to the direction of the maestro. Some of you have been like David in our story. 
You've, you've made your decision. You got anybody here that's hard-headed? I, David's king. I'm king of the hard-headedness right here. That's me. They don't get any more hard-headed than me. And I'm here to tell you, there's some of you in here that are hard-headed. Like me. And like David. You've made your decision. You're not going to budge. And because of that, you have stayed hardened. It may be a relationship with the family. It may be a certain scenario at work. It may be something that's happened in, in your past. And you've formed an opinion. And it's created havoc. But you stay hardened and angry and you're callous because of the deal that you've been given in life. And the consequences that have come, have come and they've come hard. I believe with all of my heart that this sermon could serve as God's strategy today. At just the right time, he comes in with this strategy to slyly correct that stinking thinking that's in your mind right now. It may be very well the fact that you came to church this morning to be reminded by the woman of Tekoa that you've got some stinking thinking and you need to reevaluate and you need to do whatever it takes to, re, to, to lead to redemption, to lead to forgiveness, to, re, to, to lead to hope and, 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 and most importantly to lead to some peace. Whatever it takes... Little old woman, little old wise woman that uses, as the former president used to say, a little trickeration. Whatever it takes. I'm going to read it one more time before we go. Because he's here to remind you of that today. 2 Samuel 14, 14. Like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be recovered. So we must die but God does not take away life instead he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him church he's working it out he's strategizing and let me tell you he's relentless let's pray Oh, God, I am so thankful that you were relentless and stay relentless in my life and that you do not allow me to get comfortable, that you do not allow me to be happy with the things that do not reflect you in my life. Father, I ask that you would prompt with your sweet Holy Spirit today prompt the hearts of those that don't know you those that have been running they've been running scared they've been running confused they've been running, running hard headed call them be the hound of heaven this morning and may this be the day of their salvation at just the right time and Father, for those of us that are believers and we love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, I do pray, Father, that we know that we are hard-headed sometimes and we ask that you would intervene. Again, Holy Spirit, come and convict our hearts.
and know that sometimes there's some correction, there's some molding, there's some chiseling that has to take place. God, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. Father, we bow before you today to say, chip away. Please, Lord, chip away. We trust you. Form us and conform us to your will. We ask all of this in Jesus' sweet name. Amen.